Thank you for joining me. I'm your host, Jason Coleman, and you are listening to Things That Make You Go Hmm Book Review Podcast. And welcome to another episode of Things That Make You Go Hmm Book Review Podcast. I am your one-man book club, Jason Coleman. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode today. So today, um, well, anybody who's not familiar with um, my program, what I do is, I I wouldn't necessarily say I review a book. I think I, I do much more of a book discussion where I I read a book um, almost exclusively dealing with, I don't know, politics, behavior, psychology, uh, heuristic choice making, self-help, um, anything, philosophy, anything that I feel that's popular right now in the nonfiction aisle and something that to benefit, you know, myself with my life. And I, I try to translate that for you, basically, I, I try to read a book and then filter it through my mind and and give it to you. Um, and I, I guess these reviews kind of become a mishmash of books, movies, television shows, conversations I've had, my experiences in education. I'm a public school teacher and my experiences as a public school teacher. And it, it just kind of all gets wrapped in together. So I don't exactly, <laughs> I don't exactly know how to classify you. I'm, I'm glad you enjoy, you, you enjoy this, what, whatever it is. So today's book that I'm going to be discussing is um, How to Be an Anti-Racist by Ibrahim X. Kendi. Um, and I, I think it's important before I go into my discussion that I talk a little bit about why I even read this book to begin with. So, like so many people, I guess it was, I, I don't know exactly when, six or seven months ago, when, in, uh, you know, I live in the United States, and we had a really horrific um, killing by a police officer of a man named George Floyd. Uh, he became, you know, very famous uh, as a result of his death, and um, there were basically sparking protests from all around the world. Um and a lot of things really changed here in terms of discussing, not even really discussing, but I think there was just a lot of sympathy um, and people were trying to show support to the um, the African-American community here in, in the United States. And so four notable books um, shot to the top of the Amazon reading list. And uh, the, the number one book on the subject, and when I say number one, I don't mean number one in terms of, you know, books about race or number one in educational. I, I mean, like number one on the Amazon sales list, uh, you know, the, we're, we're popping up on these because I think people really wanted to figure out what in the world is going on? How in the world can people just get to a point where they have such reckless disregard for for black people's lives. I mean, that's that's certainly what I wanted to know. 
And so I, I decided that I wanted to be, I thought maybe if I read these books, I could become a little bit more educated on the subject and I don't know, maybe you just give me some sort of insight into something about what the situation is. Because the situation in America for for black people is is not really a good one. Um, I, I don't know the exact statistics, but I think something like the average white family has something like, I don't know, five or six times the amount of um, accumulated wealth as, as a black family does. Um, I know that black people make up something like 12% of our popu- of our population and they make up like 50% of the imprisoned population. We have by far more black people in prison in our country. I think I read some horrible statistic. Like we have more black people in prison in our country than every other country has combined with black people. They said like if you took all of the black people who are in American jails and you you gave them their own country, it would be like the like the tenth or twelfth largest black country or so, or something like that. I mean, it's just really disgusting. And I I just wanted to know like what you know what's going on? What how how has this happened? You know, you know who, who what do we need to do to change the situation? And I'm not exactly new to this conversation. Um, I have several advanced degrees from college and education and if you ever take any education coursework especially especially on theory you're going to be having some discussions about race because once again um, education you know race shows its disparity in, in education very clearly as well I mean um, you know the the amount of students who don't graduate the amount of students who are referred for special education services uh, you know, it's it's a majority of black students once again. So, you know, I, I've I've had these kind of conversations before. So I just thought it's it's been a while and maybe it was time for me to revisit some of this stuff. OK. So um, I, I have to be honest with you. I so I, I read that the, there were actually four different books about race that that shot up to the top of the charts uh, number one, um, very, very popular book, um, White Fragility by uh, Robin DiAngelo. And I'll get into that book in a second. And then there were uh, two other books that I think were like number two and three or three and four or something. Um, one was a book called Me and White Supremacy by Layla Syed, I think. Um, I read that book too and uh, I'll talk about that in a second. And then the third book, um, So You Want to Talk About Race, I think, was um, by Illusiami. I, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I'm mispronouncing her name. Uh, something or other. Uh, and then the fourth book by, by Kendi is, you know, So You Want to Be an Anti-Racist. All right. And so I've now read all four of them. I don't know if they're still doing quite as well on Amazon. I know they were selling a ton of books before, but... Uh, I wanted to read all of them. Hopefully, it would give me a bit more insight. And I, I got to be honest with you, I did not like the books that I read. Okay, uh, Robin D'Angelo's book, White Fragility, the number one uh, book. I mean, I just felt like that was a complete assault on you're white, you're evil, get over it, deal with it, feel bad about yourself. <laughs> I mean, hyper monitor every decision you make. Um, you know, the same with uh, Layla Syed's book, uh, Me and White Supremacy. It was basically a journaling exercise where you're supposed to spend, I don't know if you're a white person, you're supposed to spend, you know, every day writing in your journal about what an evil person you are. 
Um, and, and there's just a lot of technical information about microaggressions and um, white saviors, like white splaining, and, and just like all of these things that I'm not saying they don't exist, but you know, I remember when I was in graduate school and I was taking a class on educational diversity and it was the first time I had come across this whole idea of, of white privilege. And the only thing I could think of the entire time, and I actually told my professor this, is I said, even if I agreed with everything you're saying, okay, um, this has got to be the worst marketing strategy I have ever seen in my life, okay? If I were some out-of-work, uh, I don't know, carpenter from the Midwest, addicted to opiates, couldn't pay my child support, I can't get a job, all right, I'm living in poverty, and then I got to listen to somebody come up and, and tell me to stop, you know, flaunting my white privilege, I mean, I'd probably go tell them to take a, you know, long walk off a short pier and nowhere near in those polite terms. So I, I, I was really wondering to myself, like, what, what is the purpose of this? Who exactly is this being marketed to? This, this idea of, of, you know, privilege and fragility and all this other stuff. And then I, I, I think I, I understand. I think I, th I came to a conclusion. I think there are a lot of white people um, who have done pretty well for themselves and they feel bad about it. They, they feel bad that they've done well and there's a lot of suffering, and a lot of poverty in this world. And I think cottage industries, there became a market for people who, I mean, this is really, I, I think, really insidious. I think there became a market for people who could write books to, I don't know, make, you know, these upper middle class white people feel bad about themselves. And so these, you had these white people who could read these books, you know, go tell their friends that they were woke and they understood all of this terminology, and they didn't really have to change very much about their own personal lives or anything. They just had to change their rhetoric and their dialogue and their vocabulary, and then all of a sudden, you know, they're they're one of the good guys now. And so, for a pretty cheap price and only a, a couple hours or only a few hours of investment of your time, um, you could be relieved of all of this this guilt simply because you know you've adopted this new rhetoric. Uh, this seems to be very similar, in my opinion, um, about somebody who's religious going to their religious, uh, I don't know, supervisor and saying to them, hey, uh, you know, I, I did a bunch of bad stuff, but I, I feel bad about it. It, it, it. Is it over now, now that I've admitted all this? And then, you know, somebody says, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I'll, I'll take care of it. Thank you. And and then you're done. Okay. <laughs> Guilt is gone. You're, you're back on the, you know, you're back on everybody's good side. So that's kind of how I felt about all of these books, the, the first three books that I read. So when I got to Kendi's book, I wasn't even, I, I, to be honest with you, I, I wasn't going to read the book. I just felt like, okay, I've heard this before. I, I get it. I'm evil. I'm, I'm a white person. I'm evil. I, uh, I, I need to learn to stop doing the microaggressions and the white splaining, and um, I, I don't feel bad about something, I guess. I don't know. Uh, so I, I didn't really feel like the book was going to have something new to offer me. Well, I was wrong. 
<laughs> the only reason I even got this book was because I put it on hold on the library because I don't want to spend any more money on these type of books. And so I had gotten a notification that when my book was ready, you know, I'd forgotten that I was going to read it because, you know, there was such a huge waiting list for the book. So when I finally got the book, I was like, ah, whatever. I'll, I'll read 10 or 15 pages. I mean, because it's here. I didn't have anything else to read. I needed to do a podcast. So, okay, fine. Whatever. I'll read a little bit of it. And uh, I, I think the, the old cliche, don't judge a book by its cover, uh, really came into play because uh, this became actually, this is probably my favorite book on, on race now, actually. It, this was a very, very thoughtful book, actually, by Kendi. I was surprised. Um, because what Kendi sets out to do in this book, I believe, is he talks about his own evolution of thinking about racism. And he definitely starts off with this whole notion of, which was, you know, very, it's still very common. Um, a lot of, you know, uh, different outlets that you listen to that black people just needed to make better decisions. Okay. They, you know, if they stopped, you know, listening to rap music all day long and, you know, hanging out with their friends and spent more time studying that they could just sort of brute force their way into middle class America. And so, like so many people I know today, they just felt like, OK, well, you know, if you haven't done well for yourself in life, you've made, you know, it's because it's your fault. You've made a bunch of bad decisions. And he says and he learns through time through studying on the subject and, you know, going to, you know, uh, historically black college and seeing different communities of black people, he, he evolves on that subject. And he basically goes to the other side where black people have been victims of systemic racism and oppression. And, you know, the situation is just so bad. There's been so much, they have so much post-traumatic, uh, stress disorder, um, you know, there's just there. They've been around so much violence and poverty and, and everything else that you just can't simply expect them to brute force their way through it. And furthermore, anybody who would just allow human beings to be in this situation without direct directly intervening, um, there must be something wrong with them. So he kind of goes on this. He goes on this uh, odyssey of, you know, white people are the problem. White people are to blame. What is wrong with white people? And it's actually, it's pretty funny. He says at one point in time, uh, he actually believed that white people were quite literally the manifestations of aliens, literal aliens. He said because no human being could, you know, would, would tolerate something like this. Um, but of course, you know, after he graduates, you know, and he starts working, he gets married and, you know, he, once again, he goes to graduate school and he, his, his thinking evolves even more from there. And he just comes to the conclusion, I, I don't know if he would say this, but he seems to say to me, and this is kind of what I believe too, that this whole world of predatory capitalism that we live in is is probably mostly the problem. That is actually what I believe. I, I hope I'm not projecting that because that that does seem to be what Kendi is mostly talking about um, towards the end of his book. Is that when you when you think about it, something like I don't know, like the upper five percent of all racial demographics in the United States 
have almost all of the wealth. I, I mean, it's something disgusting. Like, like the top 5% have like 80, 85% of, of the wealth. So like the top 5% income earners who are black have 80% of, you know, the wealth amongst black people. Same goes with white people, same goes with Asians, so on and so forth. So, I mean, what, what has, what has happened where we have created a system that allows so few people to hoard so much wealth? And it's not even as if like, people having all of this money is somehow good for our economy. It's, it's not, um, it's not as if this money is in circulation. It's, it's not, it gets, it gets tucked away, it gets hidden and you know, it's, it's never really brought out into the economy. And so you create these really savage inequalities. Now I, I understand that somebody might say, well, but that's, you know, we're a free country. You're free to save your money. You're free to spend your money. It's what, whatever you want to do with it. And, you know, I, I respect people who who have that viewpoint. I, I don't personally have that viewpoint. Um, if you have a billion dollars and you have a bunch of people who are starving on the street, we, we got a problem here, okay? Um, and I, I think that Kendi, that's what he would, would say also. And he, I think, Kendi, you know, he says it's a lot, le- the situation is a lot less about whether you know you're using microaggressions and you know white splaining and I don't even really know if he talks about that in his book. If he did, I don't remember it. Um, he talks about how you got to think about what your own mission statement is. Okay, is your mission statement to to promote racism or is your mission statement to try to abolish racism and even he understands that this is not strictly a black and white thing yes black people undoubtedly i don't think anybody would argue have been the recipients of the majority of the punishment dealt out by this harsh form of capitalism but they're not the only ones and certainly we have to to take that into consideration like one of the things I, I thought was really interesting, and this this really is this changed my own thinking on the subject. Uh, when I was in graduate school, I was taught that it's literally impossible for black people to be racist. And the reason why is because racism entails a collective power, meaning that you know, if you, let's say, are, I don't know, an Asian person and you don't like a black person, you don't have enough collective wealth in order to victimize the black person. So basically, black people, they don't, you know, they don't own corporations. They don't own a ton of property. They, they don't have very much wealth. So therefore, they can't um, inflict racism on other people. They're not in a position of power. And, and that actually is what I believed, I think, until I read Kendi's book, because he said, when you say that, you're saying that all of the judges who are black, who have held, you know, who have handed down very severe sentences for low level crimes against black people, black, you know, black police officers who have, you know, inflicted violence on black people that that they somehow did not have. I mean, and there are thousands of these people that they, they somehow did not have power over others. They absolutely had power over others. 
okay? So I, I had to think about that, that, that we're talking about power here. You know, who has it and who doesn't? Okay, granted, probably the majority of the power in this country is wielded by, by white people, okay? But they aren't necessarily, <laughs> they aren't necessarily any nicer to, to your average white person than they are to your average black person. They live in their own, you know, bubble shielded off, walled off societies, okay? I mean, Mark Zuckerberg's not sending me, you know, any checks. Jeff Bezos isn't sending me any checks. So we, we have to really think about this, that, it, you know, when you're talking about power, um, you know, maybe black people suffer more, you know, under this predatory capitalist system that we have, but, you know, everybody, every ethnic, you know, race, creed, everybody is suffering under this system on some level, and it needs to be addressed, or otherwise, we're not being anti-racist, we're, we're promoting the racist system, even if it's being done subconsciously. Reminds me when I was in graduate school and we were having a discussion about exactly what racism is. And I can remember saying that um, I don't understand how somebody can be a racist if they're a good person. And I do, and I think most people consider themselves to be good people. And I, I do remember this one metaphor that uh, one of my classmates uh she said to me, she said, listen, you got to think of it in terms of being on an escalate, one of those moving sidewalk escalators that you see in airports a lot. She said, it's not a situation where you, you're, the default mode is non-racism. She said, if you're on that moving sidewalk, you're going to be moving in a certain direction. And the direction you're going to be moving towards is racism. The only way that you can stop it is to actually walk in the opposite direction from where you're being pulled. Okay. You got to walk against, you got to swim against the current. Okay. And I, I would say that that is the closest metaphor that I can think of that ties into what Kendi was trying to accomplish in his book is that you got to ask yourself whether you are fighting against racism in all forms okay which uh, i i don't know if he directly said this but but personally i i think what he's really talking about is you got to be fighting against the system of predatory capitalism and wealth inequality mostly i mean you we can change the semantics and the vernacular if you want but i i really think that's probably what it boils down to um or are you just basically being absorbed into the default position, which is, you know, power, wealth, and money for a very small percentage of people and, you know, very difficult circumstances for everybody else? Or are you going to, you know, fight for a more egalitarian, equitable system? Now, the one thing, and I'm, I'm going to go off script a little bit um, here, uh, but before I do, I just wanted to cover uh, one last thing is in the last chapter of his book, he talks about uh, certain types of illness. I don't want to give away too. I don't want to spoil it because it was a really, really touching last chapter. It's, you know, it, it got me emotional. Um, he, he talks about illnesses um, that him and his family have had to deal with. And he talks about the metaphor uh, to racism and predatory capitalism in the end. And even if you even if you don't enjoy most of the book, which which I did actually, but 
I, I really recommend just trying to make it to the last chapter. It is just so thoughtful and, and touching. Okay, but let me go ahead and um, go off script here a little bit. I'm just going to talk for a second just about my some of my own personal thoughts on, you know, how do we change the situation? And this is not a popular point of view. I don't expect most people to agree with me. But I think the conclusion that we're going to have to come to is that black people as a segment of society, specifically African-American, uh, African defendants of slaves is, you know, um, is the new term that uh, I've been coming across lately. They're going to need some form of reparative justice, some sort of cash payments. Um the amount of wealth that white people have collectively, they're just never going to be able to catch up. It's impossible. They've been through way too much victimization, systemic racism, systemic poverty. It's just, it's not going to happen. It's going to be impossible for black people to get any kind of equal footing or economic justice unless there's a direct intervention by the government, um, probably in the form of, of cash land, property, or some combination of, of the three. I'm, I'm not sure. Now, me personally, the reason why I support this, besides the fact that I think it's the morally correct thing to do, is I really believe we're going to get to a situation, a critical mass in our society, we're probably already there, where there's so much environmental degra- degradation there is so much wealth inequality. There are just too many people who don't have um, the ability to have affordable health care, who um, are unemployed. They cannot find meaningful employment that we're going to have to become a very, very heavily socialized state. Um, that is why I consider myself to be a socialist. Um, I'm not saying that everybody has to be completely equal in terms of their wealth accumulation, but I do think we got to be similar to the Nordic countries in that we have some sort of social safety net where we're just not going to let people fall too far below uh, a certain level of, of dignity of existence. And that comes in the form of housing, medical care, education, child care, and transportation. Um, once those things have been met and people have some sort of dignity, if they're able to, you know, accumulate a bit more after that, fantastic. I'm all for it. Go ahead and do it. But I just don't understand a system where people are going, you know, one reason why people go bankrupt in this country is over medical expenses. Okay. I, I don't, I don't understand that. I don't understand my, my wife and I, we, um, we were driving around, neighborhood we had to run an errand and uh, we have an auto mechanic right next to this church which I guess um, operates as a food bank and there was this I mean we we were really like horrified when we were leaving the we were leaving the auto the, the auto repair place there was this huge line of stream of cars that were lined up um you know hoping to get some food from this food bank and you know I I just feel as if this pandemic that we're living in right now has certainly exacerbated the wealth inequality and predatory capitalist system that we have. But 
I feel as if we were going to get to this point pretty soon. And when I think that America, the country that I live in, we have it better than 99% of people in other countries around the world, I can only imagine the amount of well, I don't even have to imagine. I've, I've, I've done quite a bit of traveling in my life. I've seen exactly the amount of worker exploitation that goes on around the world, and, and it's disgusting. And so, you know, I, I know there's a lot of intersectionality going here. I, I realize I'm, I'm going off topic a bit. Um, and maybe, maybe I'm seeing what I wanted to see in Kendi's book, but out of the four books that I read, I really felt like this one spoke the most to my soul and what I feel are the the problems really plaguing society and what we are going to have to do as a people if we want to give anything resembling a dignified future you know to our uh, children and our grandchildren. Okay. All right. Enough of me. I'll get off my soapbox. Here. I don't normally go I don't normally go on those type of tangents. I guess this book kind of uh, struck a nerve with me. Okay, so anyway, um, if you are interested in learning a bit more about, um, you know, this black man's journey through uh, education, his thoughts on on race, class, gender, um, I, I really, out of the four books, I would say uh, that I've read on the topic that this one was the most meaningful to me, and that's Ibrahim Kendi, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Um, I'm sorry that this podcast ran a little bit longer than I was expecting it to. Um, these are very emotional, hot-button topics. So I hope you got something out of today's uh, episode. Um, if it's not too much trouble, if you wouldn't mind giving me a nice review on iTunes or Stitcher, uh, Podbean, Amazon Podcasts, however, however you're getting uh, this content, I'd really appreciate it. It just kind of helps me to you know spread um, my programming and validates what I'm doing a bit more. It's always it's always just very validating for me to know that people are interested enough in what I have to say that they're willing to to hang out with me for 20 to 30 minutes a couple of times a month. So so thank you. I do appreciate it. It makes me gives me motivation to keep doing this. Um, and with that I'm gonna let you guys go. Um, until next time, uh, happy reading.